Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. We don't usually do this kind of thing, but what we're going to do today is replay a show from 2015. We did this right around the time uh, of the of the accord, the the deal. Essentially, it was called called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. If you want to get technical, uh, was negotiated under the leadership of President Obama between Iran and six other countries, um, and it's a deal that we have since pulled out of thanks to President Trump. And I don't have to tell you that things have gone way downhill since then uh, and have veered into violence since then. Um, and, you know, we wondered whether we could still run this show. And the reason that we wanted to is that we had gathered the voices uh, of Iranian-American people uh, to uh, hear what they wish people understood about them, what their hopes were at that particular moment. And we have decided we're going to play it again because I think these voices are still very important, particularly at a time when not only have things tracked into the into violence, but we are now this country has been stopping detaining American uh, Iranian Americans uh, at the borders uh, and uh, treating them as though they were somehow different in exactly the way that you will hear that they don't want to be treated. All right. So here's the show from 2015. Right. That is uh, Iranian music because we are talking about Iran today. Uh, we have uh, a panel of uh, wonderful and distinguished guests here in the studio. And why are we doing this? Um, one of the things that, that we became aware of is that we really don't talk that much to people about the Iranian experience here in America. Uh, and that, you know, these cultures are maybe less estranged than people think they are. But one of the problems is, is that Americans have these really long memories. So uh, people of a certain age and people of a couple of generations, the thing they remember is the 1979 revolution. You know, they, what the thing they remember is, you know, death to Carter, America is the great Satan. Um, and what they don't understand is they don't understand a lot of things that we're going to point out today, including the fact that I think somewhere around two-thirds of the people alive in Iran right now were not alive at that time. Uh, and it's, the country is just in a very different place. But Americans' heads don't easily uh, get in that this uh, in this space with with reality. So uh, I'm going to introduce all the people on the panel. I'm going to do my best not to. I practice really hard with the names, but I'll probably make a minimum of three mistakes. Uh, Afarin Ramanifar is an artist and professor of art and art history at Eastern Connecticut State College. Um, Abbas Amanat uh, is a professor of history at Yale and the director of Yale's program of Iranian studies. Nargis Arami uh, is a professor of anthropology at Yale. Uh, and this may be the hardest one. Mercedes Pormagadam. Uh, oh, Say your last name for me. Pormagadam. 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 I don't know why I can't learn that one. Pormagadam uh, is a scientist 
scientist and co-owner co-owner of the Lighthouse Bakery in Stonington. You may have read about uh, her and her husband in Susan Campbell's very interesting column last Sunday. One of the many reasons we're doing this show today, although we actually already had it in the works when Susan's piece ran. So um, maybe the thing to do is to start with uh, the historian in our midst, our midst and Abbas. Uh, I was talking about uh, how America kind of freeze-framed Iran at a certain moment. Uh, and I'm sure this is something that, that you run into in American attitudes. They don't – they know about that moment. They are much less clear about everything that's happened since 1979. How would you explain that if you ran into someone at a Mercedes Bakery? Uh, um, you know, where Iran is now compared to where it was in 1979? Well, certainly it was a traumatic experience for many of the Americans to see that a number of uh, their diplomats have been uh, detained for a long period of time. And all the rhetoric that came out of Iran during the time of the revolution and after, as you have yourself pointed out. And uh, it is natural to see that a certain stereotype would emerge as a result, uh, of which Iranians were all, always associated with certain extremism, uh, certain anti-Americanism, and the, the general kind of a hostile attitude towards the West. The reality, as again you have pointed out, is that Iran is far away from that kind of an image uh, some 30-odd years ago, uh, 33, 34 years ago. Uh, now uh, we see a population that if uh, would have a chance to express itself, probably is, uh, uh, although critical perhaps of many of the policies of the United States in the region, that is in the Middle East, uh, but nevertheless perhaps uh, much more interesting to open up, much more interesting to engage uh, with the West and with the United States in particular. And uh, uh, therefore, my explanation would be that you have a new kind of a society, the emergence of a new middle class. This is a society that has gone through a major shift over the past 30-odd years, uh, if not longer. There is a demographic revolution, in a sense, or explosion, whatever you would call it, there's a population in Iran in 1979 was something around 30 to 3 million. Uh, today it is about 80 to 3 million. And uh, it doubled itself. Uh, the uh, the uh, percentage of the youth in Iran uh, is something uh, below 25 is something probably about 60, 65 percent or so. Perhaps others can correct me now, yes, or others can correct me in that. Um, there is a rate of literacy in Iran has grown up tremendously. Uh, it was something around the time of the revolution in the 1970s, around perhaps 60 percent, 50, 60 percent. It depends what kind of statistics we look at. Today, probably it's around 90, 95 percent. And, uh, and just to, to sort of maybe translate that into sort of images that people can recognize too, um, some of my m more modern images uh, of uh, Iran come from the movies of Farhadi, um, movies like A Separation uh, and About Ellie, where I see kind of what uh, Abbas is talking about. I see people who are both recognizable and maybe a little less recognizable, right? I see these angst-ridden members of Iran's middle class who are having the same problems basically that Americans are having in their personal lives. Maybe they're dressed a little bit differently. Maybe they're living with certain kinds of religious strictures that would be less familiar to me. But there's, I feel like there's more in common than not. 
Right. And and I think that is really highlighted best through through film. And I think that's another uh, aspect of Iranian society that has really grown. And some of it, not that it just uh, has been uh, renovated or remodeled, but has completely altered in, in various ways uh, since, since uh, 78, 79. And film, music, and arts are definitely part of that process. Uh, part of that growth and emblematic of what the population is interested in and also what what people in Iran uh, are doing and also that element that you're talking about which has to do with these sort of universal characteristics uh, that highlight stereotypes as well as uh, collapse those stereotypes, make us feel as if we're connected to these characters on film, on screen because of all those similarities and those, those, those elements that are very universal. But then there are those particular elements that are unique to Iranian uh, culture and Iranian political scene that, uh, for example, the hijab that women wear or the fact that you don't see those elements of people touching on screen and uh, except, if, of, of course, if their children only if tr- uh, children are involved. And uh, those elements are, uh, are things that can seem to stand out, uh, especially for a, for a general American audience. Afarin, this is sort of something that you try to do, right? Commun- use art to communicate about cultural different differences and similarities. Exactly. You know, I, I remember vividly when I, you know, that the days that I was uh, sitting by Corsi or space heated kind of room and you know, having a conversation with the with the family member, mother, grandmother, and aunt, and then. Talking about, you know, um, storytelling, talking about female storytelling, and and that was the inspiration of my work, basically. And I wanted to um, portray and sort of construct images of of female figures that it's it's the storytelling. I was uh, quite fascinated with with certain kind of characters, and I captured those characters, and I brought them in into my work. And um, so characters such as Shahzad, Jeannie, Barbie, and I, it was it was quite amazing, you know, after we moved to United States in 1989, uh, no, not long, long after that, uh, my daughter, she was asking for a Barbie, which it was quite kind of, um, you know, ironic because uh, uh, I came to, 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 to understanding that uh, it's just the, you know, Suppressed society, suppressed expectation of society sort of applies to anywhere you go. So um, uh, I I had some sort of image in my mind and I have a Western society in Iran and, and, you know, but when I came here, I, I, I sort of noticed that I, I that no matter where you, where you go, you're always dealing with that kind of that pressure. You know, that your choices aren't aren't are aren't, aren't, are not unconstrained by expectations, right? Mm-hmm. If you're in Iran, there's certain expectations for what a woman is, what a woman should look like, how a woman should dress, and you're here in America, and then there's a whole bunch of other socially conditioned expectations. Yes, that this, you know about the the women's body associated with with identity of of woman, you know, and the expectation of the society of what the real uh, expectation of female figure or body is and what what society mm. expects from them so that that was the kind of you know uh, starting point for me to to create images and um, um, and I I'm you know recently I received a grant um, it's a CSU grant and I'm it's about 
retelling and unraveling stories of women that women that um, that I wanted talk about you know it's it's from my perspective from my personal view and viewing all these uh women and unraveling and retelling the stories of of those um women oh, well Mercedes, the last time you were back in, in iran what did you see and, and how different how long had you been gone for in between trips and and how different did it look to you my family immigrated uh, to the United States, which I consider my home, in 78. Mm-hmm. And the last time I was in Iran was in – I left Iran in 1998 when, uh, with my husband and my child. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was there for a period of a year. So I had been away for many years. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a couple of misconceptions that I see that very often mm-hmm. during my conversations with uh, Americans – and one of them is that the role of women, actually. They're not uh, very well aware that the majority of women in uh, Iran are actually highly educated. Mm-hmm. They range from being doctors. Actually, my uh, OB was a, um, was a female who was educated in France, uh, did her residency there, and then he returned back to Iran to practice. And uh, I met with um, uh, Iranian women who were professors, uh, taught French, taught English, taught history, and uh, um, they were uh, uh, CPAs, they were teachers, many walks of life. And uh, some of them uh, have started a small business actually on their own and uh, very successful. And uh, for example, uh, I remember uh, one of uh, my husband's cousins who married with a high school degree after having two children with uh, ages less than five years old, went back to school mm-hmm. and uh, graduated uh, with a college degree. And now she's, uh, she's employed. Mm-hmm. So, and their husbands actually are supporting them. So mm-hmm. this is two of the misconceptions. I think that's extremely mm-hmm. important to uh, for uh, Americans to realize that the Iranian women actually are uh, much more free mm-hmm. and highly educated. So that's very important. And another misconception that I think that is extremely important is that uh, Americans think majority of Iranians are very religious or they are all Muslim. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, Iranians range from being uh, maybe not very religious or sometimes uh, they could be a Jewish, Christian, or uh, may not even practice uh, Islam. Uh, so uh, this is another thing that could happen that it could be in the United States or uh, even in Iran itself. Yeah, Farin, did you want to say something? Yes, I want to point out also that women had a, a really active role in, in revolution and after, uh, after revolution and because of that, the revolution, women gained greater kind of influence and power and in society. And I think uh, for so many different reasons, political and, and you know, economical and, and calls that they had. But I think um, – Essentially, their role is very different from from uh, the traditional role of women. It's quite admiring in that sense. 
And um, in half of the more than half of the uh, university graduates are female. It's mm-hmm. quite amazing number. And, and these number of, of female uh, numbers that that I'm giving you, there uh, many le- leading artists are females. And and I have a story to tell everyone about um, Lily Golestan. She's the, she she's the owner of a gallery in uh, Tehran, and she started off with with uh, just opening a, her garage as a bookstore and then she went to um, she turned it into a gallery and then eventually she started going to Ministry of Culture every day and appearing there and, and saying I, I want the permission to open a gallery and uh, and the, the man in charge he said why you're here every day why where is your man and she she responded that I don't have a man and I mean apparently she got the permission and she opened the, the most prominent gallery uh, in Tehran, and she's she comes from a, 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 a very a, a strong background in art, and her father was a, a filmmaker, you know, and and and, and writer. So, I well, mean, well, I want to go over to Abbas for a second here now, and sure. I want to hear from all of you about this. So, you know, on the other hand, my sense is that the relationship between some of the people, some of the enlightened and and somewhat more liberated uh, and empowered people uh, that they're talking about right now, um, mm-hmm. it is not necessarily consistent with the goals and attitudes of the regime that runs uh, Iran. Yes, precisely. It's interesting uh, to note that uh, what we may call the project of the Islamic Republic that was very ideologically driven and was very consistently uh, uh, imposed upon the general public in Iran, after 35 years does not seem to have reached uh, any of the objectives that it had. Or rather, it has been able to change the Iranian society to some extent. It's, uh, it's, It's wrong to believe that they had no effect on the general public. But as it was pointed out by Mercedes and by Afarin, by everyone, uh, the Iranian society has become much more complex, much more diverse than what it was before. I mean, the very fact that the Iranian visibility, women visibility in the Iranian society is so high, although perhaps not so much in the workplace, uh, employment, in terms of employment, Iranian uh, Iranian women are underrepresented, uh, like many other places in the region. Uh, Nevertheless, you can uh, consider that as some kind of a failure of the regime to put back women to the the constraints of their home environment and not allow them really to take part in the the life, in the social life of the country. To some extent, this is because of the contradiction in the very objectives of the Islamic Republic. One should point this out. But yet at the same time is the fact that only perhaps 10 to 15 percent of the general public in Iran are really supporters of the regime. The remaining population, the the majority, vast majority of the population may not necessarily uh, 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 wish to see an overthrow of this regime. But what they would like to see is an opening up of the uh, political and social and cultural environment. I mean, if, if, any, if 2009, the Green Movement, is a, 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 an evidence, we can uh, clearly see that uh, the Iranian public as a whole 
uh, moves in the direction, even uh, even the election of uh, President Rouhani, in a sense, is a reflection of that kind of a shift in the Iranian public, that attitude that in the United States we often associate with militancy, with radicalism, in the, uh, with the Iranian uh, 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 general public, does not really have any reality, uh, does not have any really um, uh, statistical um, uh, uh, backing. What you see uh, is a society that uh, sees itself being basically victimized in terms of employment, in terms of possibilities, and that's why you would see such a high immigration of the kind of a brain drain out of Iran into the West, the United States, Canada, Australia, Europe, mm-hmm. all of them to see the best of the Iranian educated uh, are basically those who want to immigrate to the West. I want to just come back to the question of religion. Uh, Mercedes made a great point that there's more diversity than people think religiously, um, Nagas. Um, and uh, you know, I, I read somewhere there's seven kosher butcher shops in Tehran. Um, on the other hand, <laughs> Americans think of Iran not unrealistically as a theocracy, right? One that I mean, you're sitting here in Connecticut, which is the last place on, in America to have an official state religion. We had an official state religion in, in Connecticut until 1818. Um, but we, in, but in, never the list of foundations of it was very religious. Yes. It? Oh, yeah. The foundations of America were, were very religious and Connecticut hung on to the notion – and it still is very religious. So what's the difference? In other words, if – the experience that uh, that we have here in, in the United States includes, for example, no atheist can ever run for president. We're not going to have an atheist president you know, in my lifetime. So it's not as though religion and politics are really as separate as we claim they are. What's the difference in Iraq, What's in, in, in Iran? What's the subtle difference in Iran? Well, I, on on the surface of it, of course, as you pointed out, it's a theocracy. There is no doubt that that is – what the political motivations were of uh, of of the um, founders or the architects of the constitution after seventy nine and even probably leading up to the revolution, uh, but as I think in various ways it's been pointed out, the reality on the ground, just like the reality here, is that there is religious freedom that there really truly isn't that kind of religious freedom in the United States in a sense that you can sure say what you want to say but in reality if you want to make good with your neighbors you if you live in a small town you should be probably be attending church or it's it's that those elements of i guess de facto de jure differences if uh, are we talking about by legal definition then iran is a theocracy do most people identify themselves as pious in some ways, do they believe in spirituality or that there is some kind of God? Again, I think that's absolutely true. Even in popular music in Iran, you do see these elements of, of piety being pointed out or spirituality in different ways. Do, do, do especially young people feel, uh, feel that there is resistance to the way they, wanna, they want to express themselves religiously? That's definitely the case. But they've also found um, – creative ways of bringing their spirituality in sort of emotion with what the what sort of civil liberties would allow them to do or the the, the sort of the quashing of civil liberties would force them to do so in some ways it's it's a flip side of a coin where they're pushed to 
show that they are, demonstrate that they are religious. And at the same time, they're, they are also demonstrating that um, they like to choose how, how that piety is their own individual expression, the, the way they pray, where they go to pray, what they wear. Um, and those are basically those sorts of little gestures and material aesthetics that really show uh, uh, where their religiosity sits. They're also very, very reticent in anyone else telling them mm-hmm. if they are or aren't pious. Or and and that, that comes out – I mean I apologize for being over-informed by Farhadi or books like Reading Lolita in, in Tehran and, and stuff like that. But this – until I get my grant to go there, that's, I'm, that's what I'm stuck with basically. But you see that, right? Like in Farhadi's work, it's clear one – of the, one of the comparisons I make is to Mormonism. So Mormonism has a pretty strictly codified way of behaving, which not everybody follows. You know, you get to know Mormons pretty well. You find out you know some Mormons who drink coffee. You know Mormons who smoke. You know Mormons who do all kinds of things that are Mormons, Mormons aren't supposed to do because for the most part, people don't live quite so in such a doctrinaire way as they become more and more assimilated. In Farhadi, I see people who are not necessarily uh, pious 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But then when they're arguing about something, when they get mad at one another, suddenly these very, very sort of pious uh, invocations start, right? Well, now now you're acting the wrong way. Uh, like it's only, when you feel it's a little bit more fungible, a little bit more movable, and less it's part rigid. of the general human struggle of finding oneself, and that's I think his films definitely the sort of neorealism point that out. But I think that's true with with everyone anywhere else. But those questions continue to to inform one another. And what's really interesting is the level of. Um, a live and active discussion that happens amongst people in Iran from, from of course, cab drivers, which is always the, the way a lot of journalists are able to get their information, but, uh, but everywhere that people are able to have these very sort of public spaces of discussion and you see conversations about what their struggles are from public for a, a poetry to uh, what's really become very much fashionable in Iran amongst all sorts of uh, all sorts of urban centers, as well as uh, uh, intergenerational, are taking self-help classes or advancement of or betterment of self through musical instruments, to um, voice classes, to art classes, to all sorts of uh, uh, self-help uh, groups that really sh- indicate that. It, it is a personal and a public struggle and the public now is um, taking ownership of that particular personal struggle. All right. We're going to grab a quick break here. Things are moving along. We'd love to hear from you as well. Feel free to tweet us at WNPR Colin as we go, talking about the experiences of Iranian-Americans. <laughs> Hi, this is me in 2020, uh, Colin McEnroe. This is Connecticut Public Radio. And we didn't even call it that at the time of this show, which was recorded in 2015. And the reason we're re-airing it today, I think in particular the fact that not only have relationships between the U.S. and Iran gone, gone down so fast, gone 
downhill to a very dark place so quickly of late. Uh, But we are beginning to hear about uh, Iranian-Americans being detained at the border, stopped, questioned, uh, children frightened about, you know, what's happening to their families. Um, And so we wanted to remind you, we wanted to remind ourselves maybe uh, about the people that we met when we did this show back in 2015 at a time when the U.S. and five other countries had worked out this uh, accord with Iran, when hopes were, were running high, uh, how everybody felt, what everybody hoped could happen, what everybody hoped we could all understand about one another. Obviously, things have moved in a very different direction right now. Anyway, here's more of this show from 2015. All right. We're back. Um, we're talking about the experience uh, of uh, Iranian-Americans and, and conditions in Iran right now, uh, but also what it's like to come here. Uh, so we have a, a great panel here. If I introduce them all, the show will be over. So uh, I'll gradually, as we go along here, kind of remind you of who they are. I want to talk a little bit also about why why people leave, why people come here. Uh, everybody who's sitting here in my studio has a story, but uh, so does uh, one of our callers here. Actually, uh, Jason is the reason that we're doing this show. He emailed me a while ago uh, and suggested a show like this one. Jason Nushin is, is an Anglo-Iranian artist. So, Jason, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Tell us a little of your story. Tell us um, uh, sort of what your, what your experience was in, in Iran and how it was that you came to America. Well, I was uh, born in England, and I went to Iran when I was three months old. And I was raised by my uh, grandmother and aunt. My aunt was uh, Masume Sehun. Uh, she was a gallery owner and an artist. And um, uh, her husband was Hushang Sehun, who was an uh, eminent Iranian architect. So I lived there uh, during the, the Shah's regime, and I was there uh, when the revolution happened in 79 and the, uh, and the ensuing war with Iraq. So I, I think that uh, actually what Iran is today is a product of that war. And if that, if that war hadn't have happened, Iran wouldn't have been as tightly controlled as it is by, uh, by the regime. How is it that you came uh, back to the West? I left for a year. Uh, we went to Paris, and my grandma, I was with my grandmother, and she couldn't live there because uh, she, she wanted to go back to Iran. So we went back to Iran, and the conditions were really hard. And I was um, 13, and my 14th birthday would have been the year that I would have been... Uh, called for uh, duty to, to fight the Iran-Iraq war. And my aunt was uh, very concerned, so she got my brother and myself out. And so we left, and we went to England. Mm. And that's where we lived. Mercedes, 14 was, I think, the age you were when you first left. Is that right? Yes, yeah. yes. My family uh, immigrated to United States uh, in 78. I was 14. I started high school in Northern California, uh, my brother and I, and the main reason my family immigrated to the United States was for uh, attaining higher education mm. uh, because uh, at that time, uh, this was prior to any kind of uprising uh, to uh, get any kind of a degree from the Western uh, uh, country, uh, you would have had a better future coming back to the United States. Although the uprising came soon after yes. that. <laughs> so it's hard enough to be a teenager anywhere. Yes. It must have been very difficult to be a teenager of uh, Iranian background in America around 1979 and 1980. Uh, that is true. However, I think uh, um, we lived in a very small town in Northern California. It's called San Rafael, which I'm um, uh, very happy I attended Sarafel High School there. 
uh, you would think that we would have a difficult time. But uh, I have to say that's over 30 years ago. And my brother and I, we never um, felt any animosity, any insults or uh, any kind of a difficult time. And mainly it was because of the, the teachers and the principal. They all, it was a town and a school that was 99.9% Caucasian, actually. Uh, however, uh, we felt at home because we were able to express ourselves and they made a forum, actually, so that this, uh, other teenagers, other students would be able to ask any type of questions and if they had any, um, any curiosity. And they found out that we were just like them. We were just uh, teenagers and uh, attending a high school. And, uh, and it made it much more uh, um, easier to assimilate. And also they uh, accepted us as, uh, as a classmate. And so um, and it's sad to say that, that uh, here in Connecticut, after over 30 years, we have not felt um, welcomed. Uh, in 2001, uh, because of a, a job situation for Pfizer, I am a scientist, I, uh, we moved to Connecticut. And uh, my son, who is actually accompanying me today, he's a 16-year-old, uh, he attended uh, um, started kindergarten mm-hmm. um, in our small town uh, here uh, in Mystic, southeastern Connecticut. As a third grader, when he reached, he was only eight years old, he was called a terrorist by other children. Mm-hmm. And those children's parents are educated. I used to believe that education would open minds, but unfortunately I have come to this conclusion that uh, that could be wrong. Um, it shows that uh, – and that uh, school is also 99.9% Caucasian. Mm-hmm. However, I don't know whether it's geographical or it's just uh, um, there could be other reasons. And, uh, but I think, unfortunately, some of these uh, um, feelings start from home. Mm. I want to yeah. appreciate that there are many, many um, you know, people who have supported mm. us, and I appreciate that, and it's very heartwarming. So, um, Afarin, I want to hear your story of leaving Iran, but before we do that, uh, just because she mentioned uh, 9-11, Nargis, I think this is sort of a, an important point that – you know, Americans sometimes are. Well, I was on commercial, you know, drive time talk radio when 9-11 happened. So I was hearing from some of the most unenlightened people on the face of the earth. And they were absolutely incapable of distinguishing one Middle Easterner from another, uh, one background from another, an Arab from a Persian. I mean, it just, it just was all just one thing to them. And they were, people were in a complete panic and all of their xenophobia was coming out. And, and, and as a result, I mean, I think in in ways that Mercedes' story uh, of of what her son heard. I mean, that's not uncommon, right? Americans had a, a they just were unwilling to make any kind of discernments at that moment. Specifically after nine yeah. eleven, I think that a lot of people did witness uh, comments being made, um, especially to young men. And I mean, I'd, I'd heard that across the region, mm-hmm. things that people hadn't heard since uh, Iranian students were in the United States in 78, 79 and the hostage crisis really highlighted, especially those in California. And I recall my uncle who was at USC at the time talking about the the very, uh, very sort of physical and personal attacks that would happen. And it didn't seem like there was much of that uh, in, even in, uh, in California until 9-11. And I think that 
people were had a really difficult time telling the difference between a Sikh and an Iranian or, or, or an Arab or what the what their religious identity was or if that even mattered. And so there was definitely a communal uh, stereotyping that was happening that sometimes it also added to anxieties amongst Iranians wanting to separate themselves from being considered South Asian, uh, Arab, or what have you, which is also a problem onto its own because it does create this notion that, oh, we are very different than everyone else. And that creates um, problems within communities as well, especially because you know, as we're, we're seeing collapse into one giant Middle East or one Muslim world. And there's there's variations there as well. Mm-hmm. All of these are topics for entire shows. But um, Avarin, tell us, uh, uh, you've already sort of, uh, I think, hinted at some of the reasons that you left I- Iran. But, but tell us the story of your departure. Mainly, we left Iran for um, higher education purposes and reasons. I want to get my uh, higher degree here. And and it was quite amazing because, um, you know, as an artist, I always felt compelled that I need to um, make my statement statement through the imagery that I create. So I I express myself through the imagery and the language that I have. It's it's a it's a combination. It's the mixture, and I wanted to juxtapose kind of uh, imagery that I grew up with. And the degree that I had, it's a Persian miniature painting in Iran, and and then getting the Western kind of um, skills here and learning about that and kind of bringing these two areas together. That was my intention, and um, and I wanted to, uh, you know, create the images of, of feminine figures, you know, the, or space that I create. In my in my paintings, and and you know after a while you know it wasn't easy. It was always a struggle for an artist. You know everyday struggle to figure out. Okay, I have all these ideas now. I want to know how to make it happen and how to make that imagery make a dialogue with the audience. That was my challenge and uh, struggle that I went through. So finally, gradually, you know, I started uh, creating images and capturing and reading and uh, kind of researching uh, different characters of, of pop culture or, or female figures in, in Persian painting or uh, Qajar women figures. So anyway, I you know, I started to establish my my myself and my thoughts as as a woman living and experiencing a different culture, and 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 came to the point that always this question was raised in my mind that where do I belong? You know, it's the kind of shifting status that you constantly as a as a as a person migrated migrated from another country. You always feel that kind of shift that this is the time that I am Iranian. Now I'm American. You know, it's kind of brought me to the question that where do I belong? You know, this belonging question is is that I go through this process of, of questioning that it was I figured it out and I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is, this is my, my emotional character. I have two characters, emotional character and I have the uh, more kind of intellectual character. And my emotional character, it takes me back and sort of holds me to my past. And I feel like that I'm Iranian. I, I, I feel really attached to that and I cannot separate myself from that, obviously, but and then my, uh, you know, uh, and and then the desire to tell the poetry, to to portray the po- poetry, and um, 
portray my personal stories. That was another story. Then learning about the skills and, mm. or Western. All right, I'm going to have to just interrupt you and get a little signal. We've got to go to a break here. So hold that thought. Uh, and uh, we're going to uh, grab a quick break here. When we come back, too, we want to talk a little bit to everybody involved here about sort of how they talk about the impending uh, deal between the United States uh, and Iran. Hi, this is Colin McEnroe. This is Connecticut Public Radio. You're listening to a show we recorded in 2015. I I feel like it's incredibly relevant right now in 2020. Uh, Obviously, things uh, have been bad over the last few weeks. I mean, they started to get bad much earlier when the U.S. pulled out uh, of the joint accord that you'll hear the guests talking about. So hopefully, uh, well, the hope isn't there anymore. Uh, Everything has deteriorated. But these people on this show wanted you to understand things about their culture, things that don't make up a big part of the political debate. So that's why we're running the show again. I'm going to return you now to 2015. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Katie McAuliffe, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Christian Amanpour. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making cello kebabs, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. And now, back to Colin. All right. So we're back. Uh, our time is fleeting here. And I do want to spend a, a little bit of time talking about uh, a subject that uh, that seems to occupy the thoughts of Americans right now. So um, uh, Abbas Amanat, I'm going to start with you, professor of history at Yale and director of Yale's program of Iranian studies. Um, I was on my computer today. I was on YouTube and these ads would flash up and there'd be red things and flames and it would say, tell Richard Blumenthal not to approve this deal. This is dangerous. Iran is dangerous. Um, it, as you try to kind of translate all of this for an American audience, what, what do you tell people? Well, I'm actually astonished by the degree of resistance and negative attitude that uh, we witness today against this uh, rather remarkable deal. Um, from the perspective of a historian, um, one thing I can say, I mean, the past course of the past at least century, Iran has never witnessed or signed an agreement so restricting, so constraining in terms of what it can or cannot do, in terms of being intrusive in in the um, life of the country, and particularly in a revolutionary regime in Iran. So um, uh, in certain respects, I think one can say uh, uh, President Obama should be uh, congratulated for being able to orchestrate such a global support uh, in terms of sanctions and in terms of bringing Iran to sign this uh, uh, document. Uh, uh, Particularly, I'm astonished because of the fact that I see that this kind of uh, opposition to uh, the agreement within the United States is so much tied up uh, to pressure groups, both within the country and outside. And this I would find actually rather distressing this is one experience as an Iranian-American in this country that I can see that so much of these pressure groups can actually bend and uh, shape the public opinion in this country. Um, and I very much hope that eventually this would be a successful deal, not only for the sake of uh, Iran or for the sake of the United States, but for the sake of the region as a whole. 
Iran, one should bear in mind that possibly is the only stable country in the region with the exception of Turkey, whether Turkey would consider itself as part of the Middle East or not. But anywhere from Pakistan to Egypt, if you look at, Iran is a country that no matter how much the regime is, uh, uh, can be blamed or criticized uh, for its uh, human rights policies, for its all kinds of uh, failings in terms of human in terms of environment, in terms of foreign policy, in terms of all other domestic policies um, of the Islamic Republic. One thing can be said that it, indeed it is a country that is stable in, in the midst of a region that all around it, as you look, Afghanistan, um, um, uh, Iraq, uh, even one might call Pakistan, even might, might point out um, in eastern Turkey, there is a volatility, a degree of volatility. And the fact that the Iranian population as a whole are supportive of opening up and the, uh, creating a dialogue with the outside world. And I think that's something that should be encouraged on the side of the United States, rather than uh, this kind of a negative attitude that would isolate Iran, would play into the hands of the uh, uh, hardliners in Iran, and uh, eventually the outcome of it is going to be further uh, uh, instability and volatility in the region, with uh, 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 global uh, uh, consequences. Just look at what's happening around us uh, uh, when a country like Germany is, uh, uh, is uh, this year is about to accept immigrants, uh, most of them refugees, from the Middle East at the rate of a million uh, people, 1% uh, of the population. I want to just move on. I want to hear a few more voices here before we uh, run out of time. So um, Nargis uh, Arami, who's a professor of uh, anthropology uh, at Yale, um, you know, I was reading one uh, article that actually was written by an old friend of mine, writes for the New York Times in 2013. She was in Iran on a sort of 10-day tour there and just was able to talk to people, young people in the streets. And she kind of found this sort of approach avoidance, right? This, we love America, we love American culture. And there's also kind of, well, America, you've had your foot on our neck for a long time too. What assumes that one of the things that would happen if this pact, if this agreement is approved, is that some of that ambivalence would go away? I think mostly I can point out, uh, having had a few cousins this summer visiting from Iran um, to the United States, one thing that they were all excited about is that if this does go through and it's approved, that they are hopeful that a lot of the the people who are in power in Iran who've been having a kind of hold, an economic hold on exports and imports in various ways – will be forced to open up, that they, that this would allow everyone to have access to so many different things and mm -hmm. wouldn't – there wouldn't be this huge black market in Iran in terms of getting to things or in terms of accessing different possibilities from getting onto the internet to all kinds of things that they they are hopeful that it would uh, it would open up. And, and at the same time, they do see that this is um, – this this desire, which one can argue existed before seventy eight for civil liberties and maybe had stopped for for a short period of time as other things were developing in terms of the revolution and continued and as as the caller had talked about in terms of the war and so questions about civil liberties again took this sort of uh, step back, which were again I think the things that were on the surface in 
probably from the early 70s onwards and a sort of global phenomenon that this uh, – the question of sanctions and the way that the Iranian state has been treated as well as the Iranian population had a lot to do with the fact that very few people who are in power and who for the most part Iran um, – most young people feel like probably are in cahoots with sanctions happening – uh, for them to have absolute control over how things come in, in and out of Iran would open up and uh, there would be less control of that. Jason Nushin, really quickly because we're running out of time. I know you feel as though the approval of this pact would have profound, far-reaching implications for Iranians. Absolutely. You know, I, I, this deal is a 10-year deal. So we're looking at, what, 2025, 2026. And by then, all the uh, people who are in charge right now are either going to be dead or retired. So they're going to be replaced by this new generation of Iranians who didn't see the revolution. They don't have all that luggage with them. And, and you know, what better time to open up relations? And plus, Iran has an incredible cuisine. Iranian food is the best in the world. You need, <laughs> I agree. You need to go, uh, go to Tehran, Colin. And taste the food. All right. No, I want, I want to get that great so I can go there. But, um, but meanwhile, I, I could go to the Lighthouse Bakery in Stonington, uh, Mercedes uh, Promogadam. Uh, do, uh, do you, in fact, serve uh, Iranian baked goods there? I mean, can I, can I try Iranian treats there when I go there? Well, the Iranian bakeries have such a great uh, uh, influence from Europeans all the time. So all the Europeans, European baked goods that uh, you see in Europe are actually uh, can be served in bakeries in Iran, and we have them, but we also have uh, baklava. But what I wanted to mention is that, uh, um, is that the, on the, besides the financial stability that this approval is going to bring to Iran, to every individual, there are some business uh, um, people that actually do business with China, uh, and they are constrained to do business with Europe, and that will open up the doors not only for Iranians, but also for American companies, which would be able to do business. Once that is done, I think the people will be able to uh, communicate better and understand one another because I think both people would be able to learn from one another. All right. They're telling me we have to stop. I want to thank everybody uh, who was here today, um, Afarin, Abbas, Nargas, uh, Mercedes, and uh, Jason Nushin on the phone. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan also for producing this show and to Kion Wolf for being on the board. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. Katie McAuliffe, I think, on phones as well. Thanks for joining us today.